<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. Yeah! I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win best. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our week in entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week we're throwing on some stripper heels, smearing our makeup, and hitting the clubs with the sweet, sweet taste of revenge on our cherry red lips. <laughs> such a shame, they'll say. She was such a promising young woman. This week's film, Promising Young Woman, is the feature debut of writer-director Emerald Fennell and stars Carrie Mulligan as Cassie, a former med school student who dropped out after her best friend Nina was raped by one of their classmates at a party, while several other guys watched and laughed. Now, several years later, Nina is dead. Cassie is 30 years old and works by day at a coffee shop and spends her weekend nights pretending to be drunk at various bars waiting for random guy to come along and try to take advantage of her. Time after time, they do. And so she has a list of predatory men on whom she's wreaked vengeance. Everything gets thrown for a loop one day, though, when one of her former classmates, Ryan, played by Bo Burnham, comes into her coffee shop and romantic sparks fly. Promising young woman asks a question. Is revenge a dish best served with rainbow-colored nail polish and bubblegum? <laughs> First impressions, Helen. All right. I love the opening of this movie. Close-ups on a bunch of schlubby, middle-aged guys drunkenly dancing in a club to Charlie XCX's boys. <laughs> it uh, really sets a certain tone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eddie? I had the same thing. I was like, okay, so the film opens with a shot of guys' crotches gyrating on a dance floor <laughs> at some club. And I loved it, not because it just immediately made me think, oh, I miss the gay bars, but because (laughs) of how it's an instant like subversion of the male gazy Mm. shots we've seen in 800 trillion countless things. And so I just thought this was a real fun way to like kick off this movie. I was totally Mm -hmm. invested. Sinclair? First impression for me, yeah, the opening scene introduces us to the tone of the film, which is very much a dark comedy the opening setting is a club and I laughed out loud at this <laughs> dangerous minefield of close-ups on gyrating male crotches and mm-hmm. the idea of us women having to navigate this Serengeti <laughs> of wild penises. So the dark humor was really working for me um, during this opening. Yeah. Serengeti of wild penises. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange land to navigate, you know? Mm, yeah. Well, uh, shall we start off by discussing the storytelling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I watched this for the first time quite a few days ago, and I felt a lot of things after my first watch. It's pretty overwhelming, this film. <laughs> And I, I've i just kind of allowed it to like roll around in my brain for the past few days. And then today I actually watched it for a second time to take it in with a kind of a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that that all in all, I do enjoy this movie, but I recognize that it has flaws and I can understand the people that do not like this movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm. What about you guys? I, I guess I'm kind of starting off by saying, did I like it? Did I not like it? But I, I think we kind of have to state that maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought this movie was really twisted, dark, dark, <laughs> dark, funny. Like there were moments mm-hmm. of just pitch black comedy. I thought it really walked a fine line trying to balance those tones because the yeah. subject matter is incredibly bleak. And yeah. it's like, oh, God, it could have failed at any moment trying to juggle mm-hmm. that. And I think that the film did a really great job. I thought this was really well done. Okay. Mm. Sinclair? 
Yeah. yeah, you know, this is tricky because dark dark comedy is hard to pull off and yeah. it always ends up being pretty divisive because it's really a matter of sensitivities, what some people yeah. find offensive, what others don't mm-hmm. really find offensive. How dark is this subject matter? How far can you push this? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, what's the intention in making this comical? Is mm-hmm. this in-depth enough? Is it empathetic enough to its subject matter? So this is a very, very tricky genre to navigate mm-hmm. yeah to be honest my expectations for this movie were pretty low so yeah. i ended up enjoying this movie more than i thought i would but i'm questioning whether or not it's because in my mind mm. i had set the bar so low mm. but i did overall enjoy it for sure and the main thing that i enjoyed in this was the dark comedy yeah. and the societal criticism even though i yeah. think that the societal criticism could have been explored even a bit deeper. Mm-hmm. I think mm. that, yeah, Edison, in a lot of ways, this movie was really treading on the surface a bit and treading that fine line. And I do wish that there were some moments where it had just explored these themes a little deeper. But there were so many moments in this movie that I laughed out loud and mm-hmm. really did appreciate <laughs> things that, that this film was trying to call out. Yeah, in terms of the themes... They're all very, very right in your face. There's no way you miss Mm -hmm. them, right? What it is that they're trying to talk about. There's this quote from Martin Luther King that said, it's not the violence of the few that scares me. It's the silence of the many. Mm. And I thought that that was the biggest attack in this film. This was this Mm, film's biggest thing was the silence of all of the people who are complicit around Mm -hmm. the events that are happening, the behavior that has happened. And I thought it was effective at showing that and talking mm. about that it yeah. even the way that she didn't just attack the men like it was the two yeah. women too who were silent right who were complicit mm. yeah so i think we should just say right now huge spoiler alert mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a big twist at the end of this movie and you've been warned so the at the end of this film our hero Carrie Mulligan's character is suffocated to death and her body is burnt. And I mean, it's, I don't, I didn't see that coming. I don't know if you guys saw that coming. I did not see that coming either. Nope. I was like, what? Yeah. And, you know, that, I think that is the thing that people are either, I think, going one way or another about. And there are people that watch this and are saying, no, like we want to see you know, this hero's story. This is not the trajectory for survivors of assault and survivors of rape. Like, that's not what they want to be seeing. And so upon my second watch, examining, sort of thinking about all of that, I think what allows that to work, at least for me, is realizing that Cassie, which is Carrie Mulligan's character, is a deeply flawed person. Mm -hmm. And it sets it up throughout the film you know she's living in her parents house she has no desire for a career she has no desire for a relationship she has barely any friends like her life is is she's given up already she's given yes that's the thing she's given up and you know there's a series of events that happen throughout the movie but when we get to that point at the end and she dies i had a cu- i had a couple of thoughts one is that eventually the perpetrator al the guy that kind of started this all in the beginning ends up getting arrested for murder which is good (laughs) and it does in a way show that victims of rape their lives can be ruined but the you know friends the family of victims of rape their lives can be ruined too like it examines that and it, I, I, I just feel like the way that her character is written, she's she's accepted death when she goes there. Like mm-hmm. she knows that this could happen to her. One hundred percent. That's why she's she okay it with out. it. Yeah. Yeah. And when you when you look at it like that, it's I think it's a little bit easier to accept. Because I mean, when I watched it, I didn't. I was shocked and I was upset, but I wasn't like, oh fuck this movie. But I know that there are some people that are having that reaction to the ending. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I haven't heard too many references to this film being called a female empowerment film or a girl 
a girl mm. power film and I and I'm thankful for that because I think that mm. notion is actually really outdated because I think yeah. that we have all come to realize that people and stories are more complicated than that and they're more complex mm-hmm. than that that was the narrative that was wrong with movies about hustlers how that film was being presented because mm. these female characters aren't to be emulated they're not mm-hmm. even right. necessarily supposed to be admired. That's not really right. the point. Cassie is not a character we should be praising for the majority mm. of the film. Mm-hmm. She she doesn't go about this the right way, and the film knows mm-hmm. that. And I think as an audience, you know that as well. I don't think that this film is trying to disguise itself either as a female empowerment film here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an audience, you do ask yourself these kind of questions. I, I was asking myself... The question while I was watching this film, like, what is she doing this for? Right. Because this was less about justice for Nina and more about her own retribution and her own mm. anger and her own guilt for not being mm. there. And I mm-hmm. think we can all conclude that Nina would not want her to go about this this way. No, of course. There's just no way. Ruining her life, putting herself in danger, putting other women in danger for for Nina's namesake and we see that with the scene with Molly Shannon who plays Nina's mom where she says you have to let this go our Mm -hmm. family wants to move on you need to move on and there there's just no way that Nina's family and Nina would want her doing this Mm -hmm. so you do question what is the motivation for pursuing revenge in this way you have to think about too all the films especially like rape revenge films Mm -hmm. and just revenge films with women in general usually it is a ton of carnage i actually got the impression that this movie was going to be like a huge bloodbath and it wasn't and not at all (laughs) it ended up not being as violent as i thought it was going to be or there'll be films where it's just very very dramatic so this was interesting and what i found to be quite fascinating about the death of Cassandra. And I'm actually glad they did it this way, even though it is something that is not necessarily for everybody. But I'm glad Mm -hmm. that it ended up this way because really this is the only violent moment in the film, to be honest. And she doesn't go out in a blaze of glory. This doesn't become some sort of Kill Bill style shootout. Mm -hmm. She doesn't set the whole cabin on fire with all these men inside. She's a woman in a dangerous situation with a man. And it shows how men are physically stronger in these situations a lot of the time. And that's a scary thing is that your chances of getting away or getting away unharmed are very slim. And that's very believable. And that's what's really scary. And I think that's what people forget is that women get scared in these situations Mm -hmm. with men. Mm -hmm. They freeze in these situations and they do whatever Mm -hmm. they need to do to get some sort of safety. And I'm glad that this suddenly didn't become this black belt ninja moment where she could (laughs) suddenly take out all these guys like Jennifer Garner Mm -hmm. and Peppermint. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a, there was a reality to this ending that I think that's what upset everybody. And I did watch a interview with the director who talked about the suffocation scene in particular. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice when you watch it, how long this is, it's about two minutes long. long. Mm -hmm. And she said that because there's not a lot of physical violence in the film, she wanted to show that one piece of violence as realistic as possible and how accurate Mm. it is. So it's actually time for how long it would actually take to suffocate someone. And also um, Emerald says in an interview as well with Variety that, you know, a lot of people might want that big, revenge mm-hmm. like cathartic ending burn the whole place down poison all the guys kill them all whatever mm-hmm. but she said it was never written because quote the moment cassie is in that room i realized there's no way of honestly showing that because it's not true and it was important mm. for to me to play out as realistically as i could the thing too about that ending is and i thought about it tonight was what if she did succeed you know what if she does carve up his body with nina's name and leaves like then what Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's not what does it actually, say yeah and that's not actually sat- a satisfying ending and there is something in this ending where there is some justice right it's very disturbing and backwards and fucked up but there is a justice in the end and I and I do think that if she had succeeded in whatever she wanted to do to Al 
that there's nowhere for her character to go from there, really. Mm-hmm. But, you know, justice at the end aside, I think my biggest mm-hmm. concern with this was that it would have good intentions but end up being really regressive. And I don't mm-hmm. think this movie ended up doing any harm to no. anything like the Me Too movement or the conversation surrounding sexual assault. However, I also don't, don't think this movie did anything to improve upon it. To be mm. honest, like it doesn't really offer a solution. We see her victorious with her revenge in the end, but unfortunately she's a casualty of this mm-hmm. revenge. But if you get some satisfaction from that, there's still a feeling of knowing that this isn't the way to go about things, but the film doesn't really offer you any other solution to the problem. And I think that that's also what makes this a bit uh, divisive. I think how this could be a step forward is if there are men that watch this movie and see some of their own behavior in it Mm -hmm. because there are moments I mean listen if any person watches this movie and thinks that any of the male behavior in this film is unrealistic that is incorrect Mm -hmm. I have witnessed pretty much every single scene that's happened in this movie in terms of the male behavior I've well, maybe not the suffocation, but <laughs> it happens all yeah. the fucking time. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, brought that up, Helen, because that was one of my biggest points about this movie is that one of the most horrifying things in terms of this being a social satire is the fact that the majority of the male characters didn't feel exaggerated. No. So <laughs> even though you laugh at these things that these male characters are saying, because the film is poking fun and calling it out, mm-hmm. the depth of this actually comes into play with the fact that they don't seem like an exaggeration, which is normally how satirical things are presented. But in mm. this case, no. <laughs> yeah, some of the things that they were saying were so spot on. Yeah. These weren't really unfair stereotypes because unfortunately... We can recognize these men from real life, which is mm-hmm. the scary thing, especially McLovin. McLovin <laughs> was he was a ridiculous character, but it was so spot on. Yeah. And, and they all thought that they were good guys, yeah. nice guys. Those nose kisses. Oh God. Have you oh God. So horrendous. Yeah. They did specifically choose the types of men that are unassuming to focus on mm-hmm. in this, which is what is really scary because women get this false sense of feeling safe. Like right. Adam Brody, at first, mm. you do feel like he's the one out of the group that has yeah. a conscience. Help her. Yeah. 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 But nope. There is one reference that I want to point out here that I really appreciated because one of my favorite movies, The Night of the Hunter from 1955, is in this film. Mm-hmm. And. <laughs> I really like that about this film. It's the black and white movie that Cassie's parents are watching mm. when you can see it on their TV. And it's yeah. not just a, a movie that's kind of been thrown in, in in the background of this scene. It's a very specific movie that they's, they've chosen here, and it's a very yeah. appropriate movie. And little things from this movie actually pop up a couple times. And basically, yeah, Night of the Hunter, it's about a con man who is pursuing or quote-unquote hunting these children trying to get his hands on some hidden money and I just thought it was really appropriate because this whole movie is about preying on the weak and the vulnerable Mm. and also having the hunter becoming the hunted and I just thought it was really quite fitting for this and there's also um, the scene after she watches the videotape you may notice Mm -hmm. that suddenly there's this very eerie almost lullaby song yeah that they use in the film, that's also from The Night of the Hunter mm-hmm. as well. And I really, really liked that shout out because it wasn't just something random thrown in. It was a, a very specific choice, Helen, as you would say, yeah. specific. <laughs> All right. So why don't we get into the performances? Mm-hmm. So obviously we're going to start with Carrie Mulligan. I thought that she was absolutely remarkable in this. Yeah. I think this is like a super complex role, actually. There's Mm. all these different masks that she is showing to the different people in her life. She's got a lot Mm. happening, and I believed every single moment of all of it. Yeah, she's funny and commanding and emotional, and it's a very deliberate performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Carrie Mulligan is the anchor of this film. 
Oh, and I think that the wrong actress in this role would have changed a lot about this film and for the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be honest, because this film is so candy coated in its aesthetics and its tone, her performance is crucial to anchor it. She was mm. really, really great. She has a maturity and yeah. a very watchable, dry comedic timing that I hadn't seen before. Mm. And she has a real authority. And she's also fantastic emotionally. So she mm-hmm. really has yeah. all of this that's that's working in this film. And I have to say that it's so weird to see her in such a modern film. I know. <laughs> with comedic yeah. elements. It's so weird to see her in a club. It's so yeah. refreshing. You know? I love this role for her. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I really did enjoy Bo Burnham in it. He's so funny. And... Like you said, Sinclair, like they have great chemistry and their rapport definitely elevates this movie. Oh, God, yeah. If, mm-hmm. if we didn't have that, those laughs and that levity, the, I, I the film would not be as successful as it is, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. I thought that they were so perfect as a yeah. couple. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. I'm just so into Bo. I love watching him. <laughs> he has such a great sense of humor. His timing is so spot on. And the best part of those two, I, I think this maybe translates to them as people. I'm not sure about Carrie Mulligan or not, but they both have a really dark sense of humor that somehow mm. really works in this this film. <laughs> Bo has a very dark sense of humor. Yeah, and I feel like she yeah. does too. Well, all yeah. she has to do, she just like, looks there would be a close-up and she just gives you this wry ironic expression it's just there Mm -hmm. in her eyes and you're just like oh she is like bone dry this dark dark humor you can feel it shall we get into the technical aspects of promising young woman yes yes (laughs) where should we start let's start with the music sure okay i fucking loved the music (laughs) it was so so good so good I had never heard that menacing version of Toxic before. And even It's Raining Men, you know, at the very Mm -hmm. beginning of that opening scene and it ends with It's Raining Men. It's Raining Men is such a like gay, joyous anthem. And Mm -hmm. it's been like, now I'm listening to this. I'm like, ooh, this song is scary. It was like threatening. It was so good. Yeah, we get the Charlie XCX boys in the beginning, then It's Raining Men. And then we get a little snippet of Two Become One in the cab. Uh, Spice Girls. Mm -hmm. We get the Paris Hilton. And then, yes, we get that orchestral, menacing, toxic cover by Anthony Willis that I am obsessed with. I've listened to it Mm. multiple times. I've even recorded my own little version of it using the uh, string version of my keyboard. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Yeah, I think music really worked in this. And that's also walking a tightrope where mm-hmm. you can really go overboard. And there, there's a lot about this film technically that was similar to the Harley Quinn movie. And, mm-hmm. you know, that makes sense because it's Margot Robbie's production company that put this movie out. So there are mm-hmm. a lot of similarities I found where with Harley Quinn, I felt the music was, it was so in your face. It was like, okay, mm-hmm. what song is next? What song is next? Where this one definitely felt like those songs were chosen very carefully and how they were covered and adapted was also very carefully chosen and placed very specifically i thought the set design was brilliant particularly her her parents house that like nauseating Mm -hmm. pink of the inside of her parents house and all those ornate furnishings the fucking cherub lamps it was amazing because you're you're just like what is this place that she's grown up in like it was such a I don't know, just oddball choice, but really like cohesive. There definitely is this trend right now with films that all look like they were produced by Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, like this very (laughs) candy coated aesthetic. But I actually didn't mind it in this one because it is a a fun juxtaposition with the dark subject matter Mm -hmm. and the idea of her being a promising young woman to have these, you know, stereotypically like quote-unquote girly colors mm-hmm. that is, is well, just I, kind of poking fun of the world that she lives in there's so much like her multicolored nail polish her long blonde extension hair 
her scrunchie around the notebook that she like tallies mm-hmm. all the men in her floral print dresses like for a woman who's so macabre and like has no hope she dresses very differently all right so what is the last word on promising young woman helen Yeah, I think that Promising Young Woman has a lot of strong elements. I can understand why this is uh, divisive, but I personally really enjoyed it. Last word for me, uh, I also really liked this film. I thought that it was like a pitch black comedy. Um, I thought that Carey Mulligan was sensational in it. And I just think it really balanced this high wire act of tone so well. So I thought this was really well done. And I think it's a really impressive debut from Emerald Fennel, who I didn't know plays Camilla Parker Bowles on The Crown. And I love her yeah. as an actress in that in that <laughs> role. So that's just amazing. She's wildly talented. Yeah. Yeah. Sinclair, what's the last word for you? Last word for me. Watch this for Carrie Mulligan. She's really great in this. This is not a perfect movie. I think it could have delved a bit deeper than it did into its themes, but there are some really good moments in this film, and it does leave you with questions to ponder. It stirs mm-hmm. conversation around this kind of subject matter, and it sparks discussion and criticism. So in that way, I think that this is an interesting watch. Each week, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. This week's theme is Teacher's Pet. This is our week in entertainment. (laughs) So dramatic. (laughs) Helen, what'd you pick? Well, in keeping with our ingenue from the first segment, I decided to do an education. Mm. So good. Yes. Mm-hmm. From so 2009, good. directed by Lone Sherfig. I have not seen this since I first saw it probably in 2009 or 2010. This is based off a memoir by Lynn Barber, and the screenplay was written by Nick Hornby. The stars Carrie Mulligan and Peter Sarsgaard. So, an education. 16-year-old Jenny is a clever and pretty student with her sights set on an Oxford education when she meets David, a charming man twice her age who derails the plans for her life. So I remember this movie being good. I remember really enjoying it. And as I started to watch it, I was like, this is fucked. (laughs) Like, why is she dating this man who's twice her age? Why are her parents okay with it? And as it evolved, it it made more sense to me because I I for, totally forgot how this ended. But something that I found so interesting rewatching this is that there are many perspectives shown about this relationship that Jenny gets in with David. Mm-hmm. So her parents become enamored with him <laughs> and mm. manipulated by him. Her friends obviously think it's like glamorous and exciting. The headmistress at her school, played by Emma Thompson, is incredibly disapproving and judgmental. And then her teacher, played by Olivia Williams, I would say most represents the audience's point of view. And she ultimately is just sad to see Jenny abandoning her plans and knowing that she's very intelligent and driven and that she's going to abandon these plans to go to Oxford and have an education to be with this man who sweeps her off her feet Mm -hmm. and then in the end the teacher really is the one who helps her allows her to take her exams and then gets her into Oxford ultimately you know she does clash with this teacher throughout the film but I would argue that she is a teacher's pet Mm -hmm. Uh, because the teacher loves her and she is she is very intelligent and very authoritative Yeah, I realize things were different in the 60s, but I still think it's very weird that these parents would be supportive of this relationship. (laughs) It prompted me to look up the age of consent in Britain, which is 16, and it's 16 in Canada too. So Mm. technically it's legal, even though it seems like it should be illegal. Right. And yeah, I mean, there's also the perspective of being a teenage girl who is wise beyond her years and has an old soul like this character does if I put myself into that mindset when I was that age like of course you would be 
so enamored by this older man who thinks that you're wonderful and wants to take you on these fancy dinners and on these trips and to these performances and is so cultured like of course that would be thrilling and so you know it kind of takes you back to that time in your life too where you aren't as educated about the world Mm. and about what you need for your own life does the film Um, explore the daddy issues of it all well, the f- interesting thing is that her father is the one that like pushes her to be in this relationship, and he gives the green light to not go to Oxford. Like she drops out of high school, she doesn't take her exams, she doesn't apply to Oxford, and then and she's gonna she's engaged to this man, and mm. then discovers that he's already married. Mm-hmm. And oh fuck, that's right. I haven't seen yeah. this film since it came out. I forgot. I know. I totally forgot that too. <laughs> And, and and she does, she confronts her parents at the end and says, like, you're the parents. I'm the silly teenage girl, but you're the parents. Why did you let me do this? Mm-hmm. The dad does, who is actually played by Alfred Molina, who's also in Promising Young Woman. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and he does, you know, come to her and say, I just want you to not struggle. And I saw this as an opportunity, you know, for you to maybe marry a wealthy man who is going to give you an easy life. Mm. Um, and that's why I say like in the 60s I can understand how that would be the perception I think the perception is quite different today for the most part anyways Carrie Mulligan's performance is really what carries this film her as an actress and as this character like I said exudes this old soul persona wise beyond her years authoritative self-assured and she's yeah she's just incredible in this movie and it's actually her only Oscar nomination which surprises me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, that's crazy. For, for about two more months. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. I thought I thought that too. But yeah, this is a, it's a very interesting film. There's also, I want to give a quick shout out to Sally Hawkins. She is in this movie for all of maybe two minutes. She plays David's wife and Carrie Mulligan's character goes there to confront her. And then she walks out with her son, her little son, and is like, and knows exactly who she is and says, oh, he did it again. I hope you're not <gasps> pregnant. That's happened before. And you realize that he's just this serial oh, uh, God. Uh, womanizer. And it's and she's incredible in that scene. And it's 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 cool to see Sally Hawkins and Carrie Mulligan act together in, in just a very small scene, but it's very impactful. But yeah, I would recommend if you haven't seen an education in a long time, it's currently on Prime in Canada. So you could give it a rewatch. And it's it's was very interesting to pair that with Promising Young Woman this week and to see uh, Carrie Mulligan's evolution. wonderful range as an actress <laughs> and evolution. Yeah. yeah, Edison, what did you pick? All right, so my film this week is another classic that I hadn't seen before, and that's Dead Poet Society from mm. 1989. I think it's so weird you haven't seen that. Me yeah. too. <laughs> what the such hell? such an Edison movie. Oh. It is a very Edison movie. <laughs> yes. Directed by Peter Weir. Yeah, this movie tells the story of a group of teenagers at this prestigious all-boys preparatory school, including baby Ethan Hawke and Robert mm. Sean Leonard. This school prepares them for the Ivy Leagues, and there's this immense amount of pressure on these boys by their parents and also the faculty of the school to conform to the school's four major tenets. Tradition, honor, discipline, and excellence. And then everything changes when a new teacher with an unorthodox teaching style arrives. His name is Professor John Keating. Robin Williams. Played by your fave, Helen, Robin Williams. (laughs) And he uses poetry to teach the boys about independence, critical thinking, passion, Mm. and above all else, this idea of carpe diem. Seize the Mm. day. So you've both seen this. Yeah. Mm. I don't... I honestly... I watched this utterly <laughs> flabbergasted from start to finish that I hadn't watched this and also devastated that I hadn't watched this. Yeah, seriously. I would have done anything to go back in time and watch this when I was in high school. I'm Your furious. life has just been meaningless up until this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's too late now. There's this really devastating quote that Professor Keating says where he says, Boys, you must strive to find your own voice because the longer you wait to begin, the less likely you are to find it at all. So it's yeah. too late at 37 to watch Dead Poet Society. No. It really is too late, Edison. You should just stop talking about it right now. It's over. <laughs> okay, but seriously, this movie is an absolute gem. It is filled with such... 
incredible moments of like inspiration and it it does a really remarkable job of getting us into the minds of these boys neil and todd knox charlie meeks and like giving them really thoroughly fleshed out characters that feel really complete and different from one another watching it now it's funny like these kids are experiencing a privilege that is actually really difficult to imagine and Mm. like viewing it in the context of today and like all these conversations around economic and white privilege there's literally not a person of color in this movie um (laughs) it's just so clear how this system is set up to keep the wealthy and powerful at the top of this social hierarchy because access and opportunity are just inherited generationally yeah but i think the story is really smart to keep the focus on these kids' struggles because these are universal amongst all young people, right? And it's effectively this coming-of-age story where teens start to develop their own sense of identity and independence separate from their parents and authority figures. And everybody can relate to that. Yeah, so the main theme here is that carpe diem, right? Professor Keating introduces Mm -hmm. it to the boys in their very first class um, by way of taking them to a photo wall of past graduates where he talks about mortality. We're all just food for worms in the end, he says. So look at these photos and you can hear them calling out to you with their legacy. Carpe diem, Mm. seize the day. And the guys are so inspired Mm. because Professor Keating is irresistible. And that, of course, is because Robin Williams is irresistible. Yeah, he really is. Oh, Helen's going to (laughs) cry. He is so, so magnificent in this role. I think it might be my favorite performance of his, honestly. And that's Mm. a bold statement because he's such Mm. a fucking legend. But Mm -hmm. he just infuses this character with such, like, warmth and passion. Mm. And these beautiful quotes from, like, Walt Whitman and Henry Thoreau just roll off his tongue. There's none of that, like, manic energy that sometimes is, is present in his performances. This right. is all, like, wise, grounded, with just a hint of, like, mischievous and fun. Yeah. Um, Keating is a man of great integrity, and Robin Williams just fills that character out so perfectly. Mm. He was nominated for an Oscar for this, for Best Leading Actor. The film was also nominated for Best Picture and Best Director for Peter Weir, and it won Best Original Screenplay. And that doesn't surprise me. I just loved this so much, and I will... It's taken me this long to watch it, but I will definitely rewatch it. It, yeah. it may be a perennial favorite. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, Dead Poet Society. Um, if you this haven't seen it in years, Dead Poet Society <laughs> yeah. is a good movie. <laughs> this just in. Uh, so, Claire, <laughs> what did you think? Uh, okay. Well, I just took a stab in the dark this Mm. week and i watched a movie called i used to go here okay from 2020 pretty Mm. modern for me directed by chris ray this movie stars gillian jacobs and it Mm. is gillian i might say don't at me i was gonna call you (laughs) out but all right right. it's gillian so i actually watched an interview with her where she talks about how her mom cursed her with naming her gillian (laughs) Because everyone was going to say Jillian. Yes. <laughs> so it's Gillian, don't at me. This movie stars Gillian Jacobs and Jemaine Clement. Mm. Gillian Jacobs plays a character named Kate, who is a writer who has just published a book that isn't really doing well. Her book tour has been canceled by her publishing company, and she also has split from her fiance. All Kate's friends are pregnant. She's surrounded by baby showers. And she hasn't really gone in in that direction with her life. Mm. So she gets an invitation from her former college professor, David. We got another David here. Yeah. So many Davids. <laughs> Played by Jemaine Clement, who asks her to come speak at his creative writing class. So this is her, her mm. former teacher, and mm. she's actually considered successful. She's a successful alumni at, at their college because she's a writer and she has had a book that's been published. Mm. So Kate was definitely a top student in the creative writing department, and David, her professor, just loved her a little bit too much. And it always seemed like he had a crush on her, but she was definitely thriving when she was in college. Mm. 
So she's experiencing this existential crisis that I think happens to a lot of people in their later 30s. Helen, you're not quite there yet, but uh, Edison and I are. <laughs> right in the middle. We're smack just down, smack down, down the middle. <laughs> but... Watching Dead Poets Society be like, what does it all mean? <laughs> yeah, Carpe Diem. <laughs> but yeah, you know, this is a common thing when you're you're fresh out of college or university or even later in life and you suddenly you realize that you're you're not a big fish in a little pond anymore and you're Mm -hmm. thrown into this world where it's very competitive and the pool of talent is a lot larger this is this is a pretty common theme that that happens to people that were in like a bubble of academia Mm -hmm. and it's a bit of a reality check once you get out in the real world so she goes back she ends up hanging out with some students that live in the old house that she lived in while she was going to school there. This feels great to her at first because she's around people that are still hopeful. They're still learning. They're they're really curious in a lot of ways. And they're at a really great creative stage in their lives. Mm-hmm. And they're exploring themselves and their art. This feels really refreshing to her. And they're also looking up to her as somebody who they perceive to be successful. So she gets very swept up in this because there's a comfort in nostalgia when you're someone who's mm-hmm. just going through it. <laughs> she starts to see how much her her creative writing has changed since she's been there. And her best work was actually when she was in school and not necessarily mm. trying to make a living at it. Mm without having to, you know, impress a publishing company. And she spends a lot of her time focusing on what's trendy. What should I write about that's trendy? She also realizes that David, her teacher, we got another bad David here in this movie. He ends up being pretty slimy and he's having an affair with his student and she finds out that he's never even read her book. And that makes her question her own talent and her credibility. Overall, I think this movie could have been better. <laughs> mm. <Yeah. laughs> Is that After generous, Sinclair? Yeah. <laughs> I think that there's some really good themes here, and I think that they just could have been explored more thoroughly. Mm. And I think they could have grounded the characters a lot more. Everyone other mm. than Kate, played by Gillian Jacobs, didn't really seem like a real person, but she felt like a real person. But... The main reason I I enjoyed watching this to some degree was the fact that I really loved watching her. Yeah, she I love her. She's really great. Yeah. She's funny. She has this awkward side to her as well. Yeah. And she's just a really great actress. And there's she a lot is. of interviews with her where she talks about really struggling at Juilliard mm-hmm. when, when she was an actress starting out and an, and an acting student. So I think it is mm-hmm. really funny that she was definitely not the teacher's pet <laughs> at Juilliard. <laughs> and she's very open about that experience. But I think, I think she's great. And really, I think she's the best part of this movie. I feel like this movie... Mm-hmm kind of lost its footing a bit but overall there's definitely relatable themes in this and she's really lovely to watch so not the best movie but if you Mm -hmm. like Gillian Jacobs this is a good one to check out because she's wonderful in it So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. So join us while we channel our inner angst, read some Nietzsche, take a vow of silence and begrudgingly step into a yellow Volkswagen because we're about to embark on a filmography filled with prisoners, beach boys and metaphorical milkshakes. This actor gets his ass kicked so many times in movies that when you see his name, pop up in the opening credits you know that there will be blood (laughs) so what does this young talented golden globe nominated new york actor get up to in their spare time you ask seriously someone please let us know because well we don't know either (laughs) 
<laughs> so let's dive into the filmography of a quiet, introverted actor whose characters have more angry, emotional outbursts than a teenager who gets their iPhone taken away from them. <laughs> yes, that's right. We don't mean to bully you, Paul Dano, but it's time we drink your in focus. We'll drink it up. <laughs> Today, we're putting the career of the talented Paul Dano in focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent intro, as usual. So we've broken Paul Dano's career down into his most defining moments in movies, and we had to decide what the film was that put his career on the map. And even though he has acted prior to this, it is undoubtedly Little Miss Sunshine from 2006, mm. directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. Little Miss Sunshine stars Steve Carell, Tony Collette, Greg Kinnear, the freaking adorable Abigail Breslin, Alan Arkin, and of course, Paul Dano. Mm-hmm. Here's yes. a quick synopsis via IMDb. If you haven't seen Little Miss Sunshine, get your shit together and watch this movie. Mm-hmm. Why have you not seen this? For real. <laughs> like, for real. <laughs> Here's a synopsis. A family determined to get their young daughter into the finals of a beauty pageant takes a cross-country trip in their Volkswagen bus. So, yeah, I mean, this is a perfect movie, in my opinion. It is. This is literally a yeah. perfect movie. Like, we all... <laughs> I hadn't seen this since it came out, and then we all rewatched it this mm-hmm. week. And I think we just were like, I was just like, what? This movie is perfect. It's so good. Everything about yeah. it. I would not change a single thing about this movie. Me neither. Actually, <laughs> this movie is so precious. Please mm-hmm. lock it up in a vault. It needs to be protected. And the best part is, is I think that this movie still really holds up today. Mm-hmm. It is still so 100%. touching. It's hilarious. And Paul Dano is such a standout in this, too, because he's a character who, Dwayne, has <laughs> taken the perfect, perfect name, name, Dwayne. He's taken a vow of silence. And yeah. so Paul Dano has to play this role where he's actually silent <laughs> for the majority of the film. And he communicates so much without saying anything. Yeah. He has this perfect balance of teen angst mixed with some real softness and real empathy mm. And his emotional outbursts that he that he does have in the film when he finally gets there are just so well acted. Yeah. And and feel really earned and cathartic as an audience mm. member because this person has been silent for 474 days or whatever yeah. the hell at that point. And you feel it in the movie. And then when he finally gets it, lets it out, you're like, yes, you want to scream mm-hmm. with him. Yeah. Honestly, let's be real. Other than the adorable Abigail Breslin, Alan Arkin is the star of this movie. I actually was, I spit oh out my, my coffee watching this <laughs> this movie. I, I forgot how funny he was. Yeah. And I know this has nothing to do with Paul Dano, but I have to say my favorite part of this movie <laughs> is when Olive says, Grandpa, am I pretty? And he says, you are the most beautiful girl in the world. And she says, you're just saying that. (laughs) And Grandpa says, no, I'm madly in love with you. And it's not because of your brains or your personality. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so good. (laughs) So wrong. (laughs) So good. So why don't we get into the big three? We had to decide Paul Dano's big three. And Helen, I think that you've got number one. I sure do, Sinclair. Um, And I got confused for a moment. I thought this was the on the map because it only came out one year later. But no, it is not. I'm talking about There Will Be Blood from 2007. Here is the synopsis, courtesy of IMDb. A story of family, religion, hatred, oil, and madness. Focusing on a turn-of-the-century prospector in the early days of the business. This is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, and he adapted the screenplay from Upton Sinclair's novel, Oil! Exclamation mark. This movie is an entire exclamation mark. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the stars Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano. So here's an interesting thing about this film that I'm sure most people know, but maybe not everyone. Paul Dano wasn't actually cast in the role of Eli Sunday. He was cast in the role of Paul Sunday, who we see in the very beginning, but not in the major role of Eli. There was another actor cast in this role named Kel O'Neill, and they started filming, 
Mm. And him and Paul Thomas Anderson just did not gel. Wow. Yeah. And it basically ended his career. He got fired from the set. And then he just basically decided to stop acting, essentially. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Which I, I've read some interviews and it sounds like it was for the best. Like, he's like, I'm not really feeling this anymore. But could you imagine being cast in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie opposite Daniel Day-Lewis and you get fired and then your career is over? Like, Yeah. Yeah. No, what? girl. You're going to make it yeah. work. you got to make it work, yeah. honey. Yeah. So it's it's quite interesting watching his performance in this film. We only see the Paul character once briefly in the beginning, and then it's the Eli character throughout. And, I mean, this is a such a memorable character mm-hmm. and fascinating to watch. Paul Dano is so determined in this role. He plays this young preacher, and he's young. Like, he's pimply-faced. His voice cracks throughout the whole film. But he plays this, you know, pious, determined preacher who butts heads, to say the least, with Daniel Day-Lewis's character. And he's really incredible. Can you imagine this early on in your career (laughs) acting in that capacity with Daniel Day-Lewis? Yeah. And matching that intensity? I know. Like, it's actually insane. Like, that bowling alley scene... Oh, is incredible. Oh my god! I, yes. It's it's funny because it's I actually laugh out loud at that scene. I find it hysterical. It is. It actually to be is honest. Funny. And Paul Dano, he portrays that guy so well. Just the part where he mm-hmm. says, "Stop bullying me, Daniel." <laughs> yeah, it's so <laughs> good. It is mm-hmm. so good. <laughs> mm-hmm. So next up is Prisoners from 2013. Directed by our director of the decade, Denis Villeneuve, and starring Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Viola Davis, Terrence Howard, Maria Bello, and of course, Paul Dano. Uh, This is a story about two families who get together one afternoon, and then their little girls run off to play outside, and then they go missing, and the manhunt begins. But really, this is a story, kind of like Promising Young Woman, really, about how far someone will go to seek revenge and vengeance Mm. and what lines can they cross morally and still justify their actions and this movie is amazing i need to rewatch it paul dano plays who we are set up to believe from the beginning is the Mm. villain basically as the one who kidnapped these Mm. girls super super creepy kind of robin williams vibes from one hour photo (laughs) (laughs) yes but like the way that he plays this character, he is so meek. Mm. He's so soft-spoken. He's so tender, like this poor wounded animal. And even his face is kind of soft and mushy and just like, mushy. just so flaccid <laughs> that you you just pity him. But he's also incredibly creepy. Mm. It's a really great performance. Not to be trusted. Prisoners has to be one of the most well-crafted thrillers ever, mm. in my opinion. 100%. So it is good. so well-crafted. It's like spellbinding. So yeah, another example of a really, really incredible film where Paul Danos plays a supporting role, but a super memorable role and just does wonders for his career. Yeah. Also, once again, gets the crap beat out of him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, all right, so what's the last one of the big three, Sinclair? Okay, the last one of the big three, Paul Dano actually doesn't get the crap beat out of him in this one, which is really <laughs> surprising because I normally just anticipate wow. him getting beat up in every single movie. <laughs> but this movie is Love and Mercy. It's from 2014 and it's directed by Bill Pollard. It stars John Cusack and Paul Dano, who both play versions of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. Elizabeth Banks is also in this, and also Paul Giamatti, who I have to say may have the worst wig that I've encountered this season of Talk Movie to me. And this is the third week in a row where there has been a movie featuring a horrible wig. We're on some sort of weird wig streak right now <laughs> we are but bad wig aside and it is truly bad i had been wanting to see this for a really long time 
And I just had never watched Love and Mercy, and I had heard good mm-hmm. things about Paul Dano's performance in this. He was nominated for a Golden Globe. And I do remember that there was some conversation around him getting snubbed in terms of an Oscar nomination for this mm-hmm. movie. And I completely agree. I finally watched this, and it, it does have to be one of the best performances of his career. Like, I was oh, messaging you guys, like, he's mm-hmm. so good in Love and Mercy. Yeah. He plays Brian mm-hmm. Wilson in the 60s while Brian Wilson is creating the album Pet Sounds. Mm. And John Cusack plays Brian Wilson in the 80s. And this is after Brian Wilson had a breakdown where he stayed in bed for three years. And Oh, at my this- God. Yes. So that's Three kind of, years? Yeah. So that's like the one thing that really stands out about Brian Wilson's life is you say, oh, yeah, Brian Wilson, when he was in bed for, because there was the Bare Naked Ladies song too. Lying in bed, just like Brian Wilson. Dude. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was a thing. He lied in bed for three years because he went through this breakdown. Interestingly, though, that this movie did not focus on the three years that he was in bed. It actually jumps to the 80s, and he's under the care of a psychiatrist, Eugene Landy, played by Paul Giamatti, who (laughs) is scamming him and trying to get a hold of his money and controlling him and basically keeping him ill. And I've heard stories about this where doctors have been in charge of these Mm -hmm. celebrities and have been just, it's just been malpractice. Of course. Really fucked up. Anyway, both periods of Brian Wilson's life in this film are actually really fascinating, but I could have gone a whole movie focusing Mm -hmm. on Paul Dano's Mm -hmm. Brian. And the, the thing that makes Paul Dano perfect for this part is that he has this really emotional side to him but he can also portray someone with anxiety very well. And yeah. he convincingly mm. portrays someone who's struggling with mental health issues. Mm. And he also somehow manages to portray a really gifted musician as well. So all these pieces are just going together perfectly. Cool. And I also think he did Brian Wilson's story justice with his portrayal mm. as well. And he actually does a lot of his own singing in this too. Some is actually Brian Wilson's recordings, but it's also Paul Dano singing a mm. lot of parts in this. And he learned to play the piano, Helen, which you would appreciate. Well, I'll have to judge his fingers. Next, but I'll, I'll <laughs> you let you can know. judge his fingers. <laughs> All right, Edison, what is uh, Paul Dano's pop culture moment? All right, Sinclair, what is Paul Dano's hidden gem okay so first off i really need to shout out this youtube video because i have been making a running joke about paul dano getting beat up in every single movie he's in (laughs) but it's a youtube video called paul dano gets beat up a lot and it's a compilation of him getting his ass kicked in every single movie (laughs) oh my god that's funny because he's constantly getting beat up in everything and especially slapped He's mm. he just has one of those he's faces. Slapped in the Slappable face, face all the time. <laughs> yeah, completely slap silly. Okay, well, mm. for hidden gem, this is actually more of a hidden talent mm. because Paul Dano is also a director who mm. had a feature film called Wildlife in 2018, which I watched this week. It has Jake Gyllenhaal, who was also in Prisoners, so there's a connection there, and mm-hmm. Carrie Mulligan, who is the star mm-hmm. of this episode. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Here's a quick synopsis via IMDb. A teenage boy must deal with his mother's complicated response after his father temporarily abandons them to take a menial and dangerous job. So, mm-hmm. side note, that menial dangerous job is actually fighting the wildfires that are running Mm. rampant in 1950s Montana. Mm. This movie is based off a novel entitled Wildlife by author Richard Ford. And apparently Paul Dano read this novel and was immediately inspired to try and direct it. He Mm. had this epiphany, like he just knew this was the story he wanted to direct. And he talks Mm. about the material just speaking to him. Like, this was Mm -hmm. the one. So I thought this was really cool. He got permission to write the screenplay from the author, Richard Ford. 
And Richard Ford was apparently really supportive and also told him to write the story and make it his own. And I thought that was really cool because I'm sure not a lot of authors are that easy to work with in the sense that they're just very free with their material. Like there obviously was a true connection to the material from from Paul Dano. Mm. But Paul Dano wrote this screenplay and then Zoe Kazan, who is his his partner, read it and was like, okay, this needs some work. Let me help you with Mm -hmm. this because she's a more experienced writer. And they collaborated on it and she helped him formulate the ideas that were in his head and have it make sense on paper. This film is very still. It's very nuanced. It has a quiet power to it. Carrie Mulligan is wonderful in this. Mm. She is so good, which is not surprising at all. (laughs) And it really quietly captures the dismantling of this family unit. Mm. And it really does feel when you watch it like he directed it. Because it's very introverted, but it has a lot bubbling under the surface, much like him when you watch him act. Mm. Classic Um, INFJ. Classic INFJ. (laughs) 100% he's an INFJ. (laughs) He also seems like he had a very clear, very clean vision to it. It's very Mm. still, but then it has big emotional moments, kind of like Paul Dano as an actor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it does feel like he's developed his own style as a director and i think that he's just going to keep getting better and better it's also very technically and visually gorgeous and Mm. what i thought was so cool was it already has a spot in the criterion collection which is like insane (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it's definitely an impressive debut as as a director yeah all right, Helen, what is up and coming? For, I know one thing yeah. I'm so excited about. Well, I actually didn't know this until today. He is playing the Riddler in the Batman movie. Yes. Yeah, so he's going to get his ass kicked by Batman. <laughs> yeah. True. It's pretty, this, yeah. this is going to be the role that makes Paul Dano famous. That's right. true, yes. So, I mean, I am really looking forward to that Batman with Robert Pattinson and, as we mentioned two episodes ago, Colin Farrell. And another one mm-hmm. that I think sounds interesting is called The Guilty. Here's the description courtesy of IMDb. A demoted police officer assigned to a call dispatch desk is conflicted when he receives an emergency phone call from a kidnapped woman. So here we have Paul Dano again in a film with Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, Ethan Hawke's also in this movie. Oh my god. Oh my god. All my boyfriends are in one movie. Uh, Paul Dano, (laughs) Ethan Hawke, and Jake Gyllenhaal. So also Riley Keough who I'm a oh, fan your girlfriend. of, and <laughs> some, yeah, my girlfriend, and someone else has, that's come up in this episode, Peter Sarsgaard. Right. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a stacked cast. Real incestuous little group of folk yeah, there, Yeah, right? a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, those two, very excited about. All right, guys. Well, there's only one way to end this in focus, Paul Dano, and that's by mm-hmm. playing a fun little game. Of Mary Fuck Kill. Edison, why don't you start us off? What film of Paul Dano's do you want to marry? Okay, I'm going to marry Swiss Army Man <laughs> um, with Daniel Radcliffe. Corpse. No, okay. did you see this movie? Yes. No, no, <laughs> so I So great and weird. It's so weird, but I loved this movie so much. I thought it was so original and bizarre. Completely original. And completely. Co- like completely original. And who doesn't want a completely original marriage? I don't know. I'm mostly just marrying it so that I can mention it. <laughs> um, I loved it so much. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Helen? I'm marrying Little Miss Sunshine. Mm-hmm. This movie well, yeah. is beautiful, perfect, everything. It's everything. I love it. Mm-hmm. Sinclair? Well, you have some competition because I, I am so. also marrying Little Miss Sunshine. While I was going through his filmography, it just didn't feel right to marry anything else. No. Because this is just the perfect mm-hmm. film. Okay, <laughs> Edison, what film do you want to fuck? Right. So Paul Dano is just like absolutely your type, Sinclair, and just <laughs> absolutely not at all mine. <laughs> not mine <Bless>. either. <laughs> so he's definitely my type, for sure. I think I'm going to fuck taking Woodstock. Right. Because that's a super sexy festival and Jonathan Groff is my type. And that moment when he comes riding in on the horse at Woodstock, and I'm just like, ooh, yes, yes. Um, So I will be fucking that one. Mm. Helen? I'm preemptively <laughs> fucking the Batman. 
Um, can you do that? You do, yeah, you can do it. It's fine. <laughs> sure. Uh, mainly because of Robert Pattinson, but also, yeah. I mean, Paul Dano, Colin Farrell, Zoe Kravitz. Like, I'm here for it. It's a sexy cast, for mm. sure. Sinclair? Okay, well, I'm going to fuck prisoners. Hear me out. Mm. Here, Okay, hear me oh. out. Hear me out. No, that's fair. <laughs> I'm gonna fuck uh, prisoners because of tattooed Jake Gyllenhaal, mm. and sure. I just actually love the character Jake Gyllenhaal plays in this movie, Detective Loki. He entertains me. He's and he's I love him. I love Jake Gyllenhaal, so that's why yeah. I'm doing it. No other reason. <laughs> no judgment because of sexy Detective Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay. <laughs> okay, Edison. What film do you want to kill? Okay, I mean, this one's hard. I don't want to yeah. kill any of them. Like, well, I'm not killing Cowboys and Aliens. I I actually oh thought that God. film was so friggin' fun. I forgot about it as well. Yeah, and Daniel Craig's ass has never looked better, and they <laughs> literally just put him in pants that show it off in every right. single scene. I'm not killing Night and Day either, and I don't care. But Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise together, it's fun. So I'm I don't I'm not killing any of them. I'm sorry. What? But you're you not killing any movie. I can't. I, there's none to you kill. Have, but you have to. That's the game. Every movie, every movie that I have seen of his, I have liked. Well, then you're gonna have to just take a gamble and pick one that you haven't seen. That's correct. Oh dear. These are okay, the rules. Then I will kill a film from 2012 called Four. No, Ellen. don't kill Four Ellen. That's a really nice <laughs> independent film. <laughs> kill. No, I've seen you that. You told me I've to. Seen that. Edison, kill kill Ruby Sparks. No, Edison, don't kill Ruby Sparks. Yeah, do it, That's do also it, good it. too. It's just Helen doesn't like it because she's Oh fine, I'll kill night and day, Jesus. Helen. Um, I'm actually <laughs> killing Cowboys and Aliens. I haven't seen it, but it looks stupid. <gasps> no, no, you can't. It's really good. Oh my god, uh Well, I had the same problem. It's what do you pick? It's surprising it's surprisingly very entertaining, Cowboys and Aliens. Okay, well That's fine. It's okay. It's, you can kill it. It can be a sacrifice. Uh, what about you, uh, Sinclair? Okay, I'm killing friggin' Oksha again. Mm, fair, I, fair, actually, fair. I actually again. killed this for the Tilda Swinton in Focus mm-hmm. that we did. And I hate to do it because I love Bong Joon-ho. I've seen his mm-hmm. whole filmography except Oksha because mm-hmm. I can't bring myself to watch that cute big hippo cow. And mm. I just can't. <laughs> I cannot. Why would you do this to me, Bong Joon-ho? Why would you yeah. create that beautiful, sweet, giant, giant hippo, hippo cow? cow? Why? He's torturing oh. me. And because I actually want to complete Bong Joon-ho's entire filmography, that means I have to watch this movie. And yeah. if it didn't exist, I would never have to watch it. That's true. So I'm killing it. I All right. Well, in, <laughs> in our imaginary world, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. Our website is talkmovietomepodcast.com. And you can become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Thanks for listening. <laughs>